By way of introduction to our text in Mark chapter 11, I'm going to invite you to turn with me back into Hebrew Scripture to the book of Daniel chapter 9. So we're going to begin in Hebrew Scripture this morning before we turn to resume our series through the Gospel of Mark. Daniel chapter 9 is where I want us to begin. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is without a doubt one of the most amazing chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, one commentary I read on the book of Daniel said, and I quote, Daniel 9, 20 through 27 is the, the word the underlined, the most amazing prophecy in the Bible, end quote. Sir Isaac Newton once said we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone. The prophecy he was referring to is verses 24 through 27 of this ninth chapter of Daniel. Before we jump right into this prophecy, let's acquaint ourselves with the context of the book of Daniel so we understand where this fits in the big picture, the full scheme. In chapters 8 through 12 of the book of Daniel, God is depicting his sovereign rule over Gentile peoples and Gentile nations. No, I'm sorry, back up. If you wrote that down, I gave you a misleading statement. Chapters 8 through 12, God is depicting his sovereign rule over his people, Israel. In chapters 1 through 7, God has already shown his sovereign rule over Gentile people and Gentile nations. So chapters 1 through 7, God's sovereignty over Gentiles. Chapters 8 through 12, God's sovereignty over his own people, Israel. Back in chapters 1 through 7, God revealed that there would be four Gentile world empires to rule this world. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So as Daniel receives this vision in chapter 9, he and his people are in captivity to the kingdom of Babylon. That means, for anyone who can think clearly at all, that means there were three more kingdoms yet to come. Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So at this point in the book, Daniel is asking the question, Lord, how much longer will your indignation be against us? How much longer are you going to have us under discipline, under the rule and under the thumb of Gentile rulers and Gentile kingdoms? Well, God answers that question in chapters 8 through 12 and especially here in chapter 9. Notice how this chapter opens. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel tells us that this took place in the first year of the reign of Darius. That means Daniel was about 80 years old at this time. He has been in captivity for over 65 years. And one day he was reading the scroll of Jeremiah the prophet, and all of a sudden he came across some statements that say, that the Babylonian captivity will last 70 years. Jeremiah 25 says that, and so does Jeremiah chapter 29. 
70 years. Now remember, Daniel has been in captivity about 67 or 68 years, maybe 69. So he realizes that the captivity is nearing its conclusion. Daniel took Scripture literally. If Jeremiah the prophet says the Babylonian captivity will last 70 years, that means it will last 70 years. And Daniel wants so badly to see his people released that he is driven to prayer. In verse 3, he says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Unfortunately, time will not allow us to go into this prayer that, that unfolds in verses 4 and following. We have done that in the past. It is a beautiful prayer of confession and supplication as Daniel pours out his heart to God. Well, as Daniel was praying, the angel Gabriel interrupted him. Skip down to verse 20. He says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, that would be a reference to Jerusalem, the holy mountain. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, what do those verses say? As Daniel was praying... Gabriel came to him to help him understand what God had in store for the future. That is detailed for us in this fascinating prophecy of verses 24 through 27. Now, we're not going to go into all the details of this prophecy this morning because that's not our purpose for this message. But I do want to pull out one section of the prophecy and show how it was specifically fulfilled by Jesus during his earthly ministry. But let me read the entire prophecy for us, and then we'll center in on that one particular part. Verse 24, here's the prophecy. Seventy sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of that week, or that seven, literally in Hebrew, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. For until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. The first thing I want us to notice about this prophecy is that it covers a specific period of time. Verse 24 says it covers, most of our English translations say 70 
weeks. A more literal translation from Hebrew would be 70 sevens. So this prophecy covers a time consisting of 70 periods of seven. It can be demonstrated that these periods of seven are periods of years. So God says that this prophecy consists of 77-year periods. You do the math, you multiply it out, it's a total of 490 years. So this prophecy covers a scope, a time frame of 490 years. Now we need to see the details of this prophecy. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. According to the first part of this verse, the starting point of this time period is when the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. We know when that was. We don't have to guess. It was on March 5th, 444 B.C. Now just a pause here or a parenthesis. Some of you may have a date in your, if you've taken notes in the past or in your study Bible, of March 14th, 445 B.C. It's not that that is necessarily wrong. It's just that this is a very, very complicated issue. Way more complicated than I have time to explain this morning. When you are trying to affix a date to an event in biblical history, it is extremely difficult because you have so many factors. First of all, you have to deal with the fact that the Jewish calendar, the Jewish year, is only 360 days. Our calendar year is 365 days. Plus, every now and then, in the leap year, we throw in another day. But when you're trying to go back and affix a date to an event in biblical history, you have to account for that, in addition to the fact that maybe you're using a Roman or a Julian calendar, and it's very, dating is very complicated. And some of you singles in our church say, yeah, tell me about it. I know that. Well, that's not the kind of dating I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical dating. I'm talking about dating biblical events, all right? So just for the sake, without going into all the details, we're going to go with March 5th, 444 B.C. On that date, King Artaxerxes issued the decree to Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Now the prophecy says that from that point until Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. In other words, 69 periods of seven, do the math, 483 years. Many scholars believe that the reason these 69 sevens were split up into 7 and 62 is because it would take the first 49 years, the first seven sevens, just to complete the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Then the next 62 sevens would complete this part of the prophecy. But without getting lost in all those details of verse 25, just notice that it clearly says, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, to the Messiah shall be 69 sevens. Multiply that together, you get 483 years. Do you know what's so amazing about that? If you calculate 483 years, including 360-day years on the Jewish calendar, leap years, all of that, if you calculate 483 years beginning with March 5th, 444 B.C., you will come up with March 30th, A.D. 33, 
or the 10th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. And here's what is so significant about that date. That was the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey and presented himself as Messiah. That was the very day to the day. We often call that event the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy or this part of this prophecy with precise accuracy to the very day. That is recorded for us in the text we're going to consider this morning in Mark chapter 11. So let, with this as background, let's turn over to our text in Mark chapter 11. This story that we're going to read and consider this morning is the fulfillment of that part of Daniel chapter 9 that we just looked at. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 10 of Mark chapter 11. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This event took place, obviously, in the last week before Jesus was crucified. Just a few days later, he would be nailed to a cross in fulfillment of so many of the things that had been prophesied in Hebrew Scripture. But before that took place, this event had to take place. Because you see, this too was prophesied in Hebrew Scripture. It was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, as we just saw during the introduction, and it was also prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. So this event was not just random. This was not just happenstance. This had been predicted hundreds of years in advance. Mark 11, 1 through 10, is the precise fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel 9.25 and Zechariah 9.9. But sadly, very few of the people involved in this glorious event realized the significance of what was taking place because they had their own agenda or their own perspective or their own grid that they were filtering everything through. So let's consider this fascinating story together. Back at verse 1, Mark tells us, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany, remember now, Jesus is traveling with a huge multitude of people. 
They started all the way up north in Galilee. They're making the trek down to be in Jerusalem for Passover. And so as Jesus continued south, more and more people joined the crowd. It's, this was a humongous crowd. By the time they got all the way down, after days and days and days, by the time they get down to Judea and they're approaching Jerusalem from the backside, coming up from Jericho, Mark tells us as they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. So he sends two on ahead to get things ready. As you read through the gospel accounts, it is clear that Jesus was on a divine timetable for his ministry and his life and his death. There were many occasions, as you know from reading through the gospels, there, are many, there were many occasions when he avoided confrontations with his enemies and avoided death because he knew it wasn't the right time to die. But as we enter this 11th chapter of Mark's gospel, the time has come. It is time. It is just a few days before the Jewish Passover, and this was the year that he would die on Passover. So he began to set everything into motion to move toward his crucifixion. It's amazing to think about the fact that Jesus was in control of his own death and its timing. In John 10, 18, he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This I receive from my Father. <clears throat> so Jesus died when it was time for him to die. When Pilate made the claim that he had the power to kill Jesus. You remember that in the trial? When Jesus wouldn't answer and Pilate gets frustrated and says, listen, don't you know I have the power to kill you or let you go? Jesus set him straight by saying this, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus was in control of his own death and its timing. And here in verse 1, we see him setting things into motion to move toward his arrest, his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. The final week of his life will begin with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Some of the disciples were given the responsibility to arrange the logistics. Verse 2, he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. At first glance, this might seem like a rather incidental statement. But when you stop to think about it, it raises some interesting questions. Some of which, unfortunately, we can't answer. I don't want to read something into the story that is not there, but I do wonder about this colt. How did Jesus know about it? How did he know that it would be tied to a spot immediately inside the village? Well, you have a couple possible answers. Maybe it was because he had gone there, looked things over, and prearranged everything with the owner. But other events in the life and ministry of Jesus may indicate otherwise. And, in fact, even in this case, it doesn't seem likely because he is with this crowd traveling from Galilee and they have been together the whole time. Jesus, we have no indication that he left them. In other words, he hadn't been to Jerusalem in recent days. 
He's just arriving. So he could not have gone ahead and gone into the city and prearranged this. And this fits with some other events that happened, some other things that took place here right at the end of his life. For example, during this same final week of his life, when he and his disciples were getting ready to celebrate Passover, so that would be just a few days later, Jesus told them how to get the room ready for the event. And here's what he said. Luke 22.10 tells us that he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. Isn't that interesting? I find myself asking the question, how did Jesus know that at the very moment the disciples entered the city of Jerusalem, there would be a man right there carrying a pitcher of water? Especially when it wasn't the custom for men to carry water. Women carried water. How did Jesus, how did this happen? Was it omniscience? Or was it because he had prearranged it? And if he did prearrange it, how did he make it certain that it would all be coordinated at just the right time? Did he tell the man to just stand inside the city with a pitcher of water until some disciples showed up? Not very likely. Those are the kinds of questions that we can't completely answer if Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us. But you do wonder what all was behind this simple statement to the disciples regarding a cult tied to a spot immediately inside the village. The implication, the clear implication is, Jesus knew exactly how it would be. He had not been there yet. Oh, he had been to Jerusalem many times, but not in weeks. He hadn't been there recently. But he knew how everything would be exactly. And he is coordinating everything leading up to his death. So verse 3 tells us, Jesus, in continuing his instructions, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. As we see in the next few verses, this is exactly what happened. It's interesting to note that Matthew, in his account, doesn't mention that this happened. That may be because Peter, who was the source behind Mark's gospel, was involved in this little interchange, and if so, he was an eyewitness of the events. In other words, it is possible, it is likely, that Matthew was merely told about what happened, but Peter was actually there, a part of it. So he related to Mark, who then included it in his gospel. Verse 4 says, So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Now, at this point in the story, we need to pause and ask a question. Why is all of this so important? Why did Jesus go to so much effort to make this happen? What's the significance of this? Matthew answers that question for us in his account. So go back to Matthew chapter 21 for just a moment. Back to the previous gospel record, Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> Verse 4. As Matthew tells the story, he includes a part that Mark doesn't. He pauses in the story to say this in verse 4. All this was done, Matthew 21, 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, 
Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. You probably can tell from your Bible that this is a quote. Your Bible probably either has this, this part of verse 5 in quotation marks, or it's italicized, or it's indented, something to signal to you that this is a quote. It is a quote from Zechariah 9.9. 9. It's a significant sign because almost all military or political leaders would come riding along on a stallion as a symbol of war, but not the Messiah. Zechariah stated that he would be easy to identify because he would make himself known by riding into the city on a colt, a symbol of peace. However, his humble approach should not be taken to mean that he is less than he really is. He is the king. That's why the quote says, Behold, your king is coming to you. This was the day prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. And it is safe to assume that many people of the multitudes would have known this prophecy from Zechariah 9. That's why they responded the way they did, as we'll see in just a moment. Even though many of them misinterpreted Jesus' intentions, they knew the significance of him riding into Jerusalem on a colt. They knew that was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Now back to our text in Mark chapter 11. So that is the significance or the reason behind this, which Mark chose not to put into his account. But notice what he does tell us, beginning in verse 6. They spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The spreading of clothes on the road was an ancient way of expressing homage to high royalty. That means that many in this crowd were acknowledging that Jesus was the king. That wasn't the problem. He was the king. He is the king. But the problem was the kind of king they assumed he would be. Their assumption was clear in what else they did on this occasion. Mark tells us they cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. It would be easy to miss the significance of that, but John tells us in his account that these branches were palm branches. Palm branches, because of events connected to Israel's past, had become the symbol of freedom for the Jewish people. It would be very similar to the stars and stripes today, the American flag for Americans. So what that tells us is that for many in the crowd, this was a very political event. They saw Jesus as the conquering military and political leader. That's why they were in such a frenzy. That's why they were so excited. They thought this was the day that Jesus would begin his military campaign or his political maneuvering to take over as king. That's why they said what they did in the following verse. Verse 9, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Did you notice the word that was used twice in this exclamation? Obviously the word Hosanna. The term Hosanna literally means save now. That is very significant in this context. Keep in mind that this event is taking place down in Judea, the southern part of Israel, right near Jerusalem, the capital city. At the time this was taking place, the Roman Empire ruled the world. Rome was in power when Jesus was in the midst of his public ministry. Rome had been in power for almost 100 years. And the thing the Jewish people wanted more than anything else was to be released from the oppression and domination of the Roman government. In fact, they thought that was the reason why the Messiah would come. They thought Messiah would come as a king and lead them in revolt and in victory over Rome. You see, they wanted physical salvation, physical deliverance. They wanted release from the oppression of the Roman government. Most of the Jewish people in the land of Israel during Jesus' day weren't really interested in spiritual salvation, the, the spiritual salvation that Jesus came offering. Don't be confused by the presence of the multitudes on this occasion. Don't overread that. Very few of them were present because they knew they were sinners who needed forgiveness and salvation. They were there because they thought that this man was about to make their political circumstances better. They thought this was the beginning of the earthly kingdom, which is why they shouted here in verse 10, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. The crowd thought Jesus was about to make their political circumstances better. That's what they wanted. As you think about it, the sad fact is that things haven't changed in our world today. It's the same way in our world today. So many people in our world are only interested in Jesus for what they can get out of him. They want to come to Jesus on their terms for their purposes and not his. Their motivation is totally selfish. And the sad part about it is that we even have Christians who propagate or promote that kind of thinking with the way they present the gospel. The, the message of salvation has been so cluttered today by those who say things like this, receive Jesus and he will solve all your problems. Receive Jesus and he will heal you. Receive Jesus and he will prosper you. Receive Jesus and he will give you self-esteem. Receive Jesus and he'll give you this or he'll give you that. Beloved, hear me. That kind of message, which is not really the gospel, that kind of message simply appeals to the selfishness and pride of unregenerate man, and that is our problem. We have no business feeding that with a supposed gospel that reinforces that wrong thinking. We are all basically self-centered people and prideful, especially apart from Christ. Pride is the barrier between God and man. And instead of loving God, we all naturally love self. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. 
So when we ask people to come to Christ by appealing to their selfishness or by appealing to their pride, we're just piling people on the broad road to destruction. We're not doing people any favors. When Jesus came offering spiritual salvation, spiritual deliverance, most of the Jews in the land didn't want it. You see this very clearly in the gospel accounts. They didn't want it. They didn't want their hearts changed. They wanted their circumstances changed. They wanted their political situation better. They wanted physical salvation and deliverance from Rome. That's what they wanted. And this same kind of thing is true today. Sadly, most people today in our world, in our country, don't want spiritual salvation. They don't want salvation from sin. They don't want their hearts changed. They want their circumstances changed. They want their political situation changed. They want physical salvation and deliverance from problems, deliverance from sickness. They want God to prosper them. They want God to tell them it's okay and it's even right to love yourself and be self-centered. And sadly, some segments of Christianity feed that very kind of mentality. Oh, it is grievous to see what is going on in Christianity today because we're just repeating history. We see this playing out right here in this text before us as, as the people, a multitude of people are in a fever pitch because they believe Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and give them what they want, making their circumstances better. They're shouting, Hosanna, save now, do it now, overthrow Rome. Throw off the yoke of bondage. They recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but they had the wrong perspective of what the Messiah had come to do. Now, it is true that at his second coming, he will come as a king to overthrow all of man's kingdoms, but that wasn't his purpose during this first coming. He had come to save his people from their sins. Remember, that's what was announced at his birth. That was the issue. He's come to name this child Jesus. Both Joseph and Mary were instructed, name the child Jesus because his name means Yeshua or Yahweh is salvation. For, we are told in the text, he came to save his people from their sins. But most people missed that. They blocked it out of their minds. That's not what they wanted. But that's what Jesus came to do. And to do that, he would have to be condemned and crucified. And what he would do next here in Mark's gospel would set into motion those events. Mark tells us in verse 11, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You see, Jesus planned to do something that would set into motion the events leading up to his death. But it was too late in the day to do it. He would do it the first thing the next morning. He would go into the temple again and cleanse it, knowing that when he had done that the first time, the Jewish leaders had basically said this, if you ever do that again, we will kill you. And so Jesus purposely, the very next morning, would go in and do the very thing that he knew 
would lead to his death. It's fascinating to realize that according to Exodus 12, the Sunday before Passover was Lamb Selection Day. It was the day the Jewish people, you remember the instructions God gave to them in the Passover? You need to take this lamb, bring it into your house, make sure it's unblemished, has to stay with you a few days before you kill it and use its blood, and etc. You, you know the ritual there. So the Sunday before Passover was Lamb Selection Day. It was the day the people chose their lamb that would be the sacrifice at Passover. Are you ready for this? This, this was that day. And Jesus was God's lamb for the sacrifice. You could almost say it this way. The triumphal entry was God's way of choosing his sacrificial lamb that would be slaughtered in just a few days. Matthew caps off this event for us with his account. So let's go back there as we close to Matthew chapter 21 to see how he closes out this event. Matthew tells us in verse 10, and when Jesus had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? You see, this was a huge event. Palm Sunday wasn't something that took place off in a corner. There was a huge multitude of people in front of Jesus and behind Jesus as he rode down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up into the city of Jerusalem. And since Passover was just a few days away, the city would have been bulging with about, some historians say, as many as two million people crowded into the city and around the city. So this event caused quite a stir among many of those people. That's why Matthew says that all the city was moved. You could say it this way. This event shook Jerusalem. This event shook Jerusalem in many ways. It is certain that the Roman soldiers and the Roman leaders took note of it because their goal was to keep things under control, keep things quiet. So whenever a huge event like this took place, they were a little on edge. They were nervous. It is certain that the Jewish leaders such as the Pharisees and Sadducees took note of it because their goal was to keep their power and influence among the people. It is certain that the common people took note of it because the size of the crowd and the volume of the noise was too great to ignore. So this event caused, caused a stir and created a buzz throughout the city. People were asking, who is this? Who is this guy? Verse 11 so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. You know what is amazing about that statement? It's true. It's accurate. Jesus was the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So consider this. These people had the facts right about Jesus, but that didn't mean they were saved. Let that be a lesson to us, beloved. It is possible to have all the facts right about Jesus and still not be saved. 
You can know Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, he died on the cross, he rose again the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father. You can know all of those facts and still not be a Christian. You can know all those facts and still not be saved. Is that you? Do you know all the right facts about Jesus, but for you it's only head knowledge? It's only mental assent? Knowing all the right facts about Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. The issue is whether or not you have surrendered your heart and will to him. Have you? I ask you this morning, have you? If not, understand, realize that believing all the right information doesn't mean you are saved and right with God. That's not enough. Believing the facts is not enough. Because salvation involves the will, the heart, not merely head knowledge. Let's bow together as we close. And as we bow our heads in closing this morning, consider that final point, please. My guess is most people in this room, maybe everyone, but certainly most people in this room would acknowledge, would say, oh, I, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe those facts. But understand, that doesn't make you right with God. Understand, that doesn't make you a Christian. What is your relationship to Jesus Christ? Have you submitted to him? Have you surrendered to him? Or is it just mere mental assent to facts? See, it's possible for you to be here this morning and be like many who were in the crowd that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and, and to be in the crowd but not be right with God. And if that is you, I wouldn't want you leaving here this morning unchallenged. I wouldn't want you leaving here this morning assuming just because you're here, that means you're okay with God. How do you really stand with Jesus Christ? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? And Father, as we contemplate this event, what a tremendous, what a glorious event for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on a colt in fulfillment of Daniel 9, Zechariah 9, coming to save his people from their sins. And yet we've seen this morning that so many in the crowd, though they thought Jesus was the Messiah, they were convinced of that. They had the wrong perception, the wrong understanding. And so that is a challenge to us. It should be. It should cause us to reflect, how do I really relate to Jesus? Do I merely relate to him as someone who I think will give me what I want? Or do I relate to him as the king to whom I should submit and bow before him as my Lord and Savior? Father, may you stir our hearts with this story we have seen. Challenge our hearts. And especially, we pray, for anyone here among us who is not right with you, who is not right with your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would break through would make that abundantly clear to that man or woman, whoever it is, so that this would be the day he or she would respond and yield to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the King, worthy of worship, worthy of reverence, worthy of our submission. It's in his exalted and matchless name that we pray together this morning. Amen.